Hello listeners, Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few announcements for you. We hope you were able to join us last month for the second edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit. It was a great week filled with amazing talks from amazing speakers from all around the world, including early career scientists. Find out more about the winners of the best talks given at the summit by the next generation of GPCR scientists by following us on social media today. Also, you can now watch the talks from the summit on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe today. You will get notified whenever we share new videos, and it is also a great way to support our work. Another great way to support us is by subscribing to the Dr. GPCR newsletter. The upcoming newsletter contains the summit survey. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you'd want us to keep, improve, and how to make Dr. GPCR work for you. Stay tuned for the upcoming Dr. GPCR virtual cafe events. Visit drgpcr.com to find out more about all our activities. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and we are here today with Dr. Adriano Marchese uh, to uh, record a new podcast episode. Hi, Adriano. Hi, Yamina. How are you? I'm, I'm great. I'm so excited we were able to, to sit down to chat today. Thank you. So am I. Glad we were able to make this work. Fantastic. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, where are you located? And tell us a little bit about, about yourself. I'm currently located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Medical College. I'm in the Department of Biochemistry. Um, I moved up here about five years ago from my previous institution, Loyola University of Chicago, where I was in the pharmacology department. I'm actually a pharmacologist by training. Um, it's been great. Milwaukee's a nice small city, a lot different than a lot smaller than Chicago, uh, but it still has full amenities and one of the positive things about it is less traffic. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, how, how's the temperature of Chicago versus Milwaukee in the wintertime? It's very similar, maybe slightly colder up here. We're about <laughs> 90 minutes away, 60, 70 miles. So it's very similar, although um, obviously we can get snow up here and they don't get snow down there. So, But it's oh. very similar. That's that's great, and I know I, I was obviously I looked you looked you up online, and I saw that you uh, you studied uh, at the University of Toronto. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your training? Yeah, no, I was born and raised in Toronto. I did my undergraduate training in Toronto. Uh, my undergraduate degrees in pharmacology. Uh, I had a good experience there. Decided to stay there for graduate school, and and. I've got a master's degree in pharmacology and also my PhDs in pharmacology from the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Toronto. So I, I was there for a good chunk of time uh, in the 90s, 80s and 90s, I guess. And then from there, I, I, I did my postdoctoral training at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, in Jeff Benedict's lab. That's great. I interestingly, because when I saw that it was you, you did your your studies in Toronto, I figured, oh, I'm going to ask you, are you a fellow Canadian? Because I did my studies. Well, I'm, I wasn't born in Canada, uh, but I studied at the University of Montreal. Moved there as a teenager, and I did as well a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in the same university. All the, only was in biochemistry. Uh, so we awesome. have that in common. Yeah, a we big chunk. Big chunk of time in the same same place, and then I actually moved to to New York City at Rockefeller University in Tom Sackmar's lab, which nice. is close enough to to Philadelphia and to Jeff Benefic's lab. <laughs> That's right, we're uh, pretty close. <laughs> we used to hold the uh, the um, what's called the G protein signaling workshop one year in Philadelphia and one year uh, in actually every two years and one alternating between Philly and uh, and New York. Yeah, that was good. So when I so when I was in Philly, I think. I think I was in Philadelphia before you. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah. I was there before you. Yeah, <laughs> Sackmar's lab. Yeah. it used to be at Yale, and then mm -hmm. or run by Yale at Mount Sinai in New York City. So we would we would take the train up to go to that same meeting. Yeah, it was a really good meeting. One day meeting. Yeah, I love that. We did the same thing. We took the train from New York to go to Philly to spend the day, and once I drove from actually from Maryland. For the day to Philly to uh, to be at the uh, at the workshop, and I think that was a couple of years ago, maybe 2018, 
It was a pretty nice, pretty nice meeting. So tell us a little bit more about uh, Adriano as a teenager. Were you interested in science? How did you become a pharmacologist? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I, 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 I was interested in life science courses and math in high school. Um, and I knew that I wanted to go study science at university. Not really exposed to research, though, during that period. So at university, I became exposed to research when I majored in pharmacology. So after my second year, we, we, we were kind of unwedded to a particular field until our, after our second year, and I chose pharmacology. It looked like a very interesting field, and, and that's where I became interested in GPCRs. I remember my third year medical or pharmacology class where we learned about how drugs work. And since most drugs were acting as GPCRs at the time, we learned a lot about GPCRs. And I remember being excited by that. And that transitioned into me then doing a fourth year, four year internship or research project on, on somewhat GPCR related, but also ion channel related. Uh, project and that's when I became interested. Really, in my fourth year research project, became interested in graduate school. I, I thought I first exposure to hands-on research. I liked it. I loved it actually, and that's how I decided to go to graduate school. What was the project you first worked on? Yeah, so um, it actually ended up. So it was it was looking at arginine basal pressin induced motor coordination of pentobarbital in rats. Okay, well, that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, vasopressin can make, uh, pen can potentiate pentobarbital effects in rats. And, and we were looking at that um, from a behavioral perspective, but also from a biochemical perspective. So uh, pentobarb acts on chloride channels, and we we're looking at uh, how ABP affected chloride flux in synaptosomes. So it was actually a pretty cool project. So I got to experience the in vivo behavior aspect of it. I had to train rats, how to run on a belt and then inject them with drugs and measure their responses. So that was pretty cool. I did that by myself, actually. I was trained by a talented technician and then was able to do it on my own. And then we tried to correlate that with the biochemical process to see if AVP cross which acts on a GPCR uh, somehow cross-affected or cross-regulated these chloride channels in the brain, the GABA-A channels in particular. And, and th th we didn't see an effect, but it was, it was an interesting, at least behavioral response and a, and a negative mechanistic link, but we were able to publish it. And that actually led to my first, first author publication. And that's, that really got me excited about research. In graduate school, that's that's a really uh, while well, you were you know talking about your first experience in your first paper, and I remember my first paper, and I think I think we agree on the fact that that's the exciting part. So you you've done all the work and you know the grunt work, the data analysis, and then but you get that email saying congratulations, it's in. Um, I think it has a very interesting um, effect on the brain, and it gives you such dopamine rush that you want to do it again and again and again and again. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good analogy. I agree. Uh, that's how it worked out for me. And of course, I have to say that I, the environment in the pharmacology department at the time was pretty outstanding. Some, some really cool scientists who were doing cool work, um, excellent mentors, and the graduate students. So the project that I was involved in was um, led by a research associate in the lab, the main lab that I worked in, and a graduate student. Didn't help me with the behavioral stuff. Uh, that wasn't his expertise, but the chloride flux and just helping me with that and doing it together, really good collaborative team effort. So it was a good environment to, to succeed, I thought. And, and so I was kind of lucky in that regard. That's fantastic. And then what, what made you, well, most likely the, this publication got you inspired and got you to decide to go to graduate school, but was there a specific event other than this paper that, you know, made you think, hmm, I actually, I'm pretty good at this. I'm going to go and, and go to graduate school. Yeah. So I, I definitely, I, 
I didn't know what I wanted to do before I entered my fourth year, if I wanted to go to research or not. But as soon as I was exposed to the research element and interacting with uh, fellow students and, and learning about the work that was being done on campus and interact with graduate students in particular, I kind of knew that I graduate school was a path that I wanted to go in. However, I had an opportunity to work in the summer after I graduated in a, in a, as a research assistant or a summer internship, I should say, in one of the in one of the labs on campus. So I full time research, not the uh, type, not the time commitment that I put in during my fourth year project, but this was full-time commitment, day in, day out research, and, and I loved it even more. That's that's great. And, and again, it I think I think it's the it's the Canadian connection here, but it did remind me of of the summer. So I did spend an entire summer as an undergraduate working in Nicolas Zivikir's lab. And after that, you know, going into my master's. Spending the summers while it's super hot outside, extremely cold in the lab, and then you know getting out of the lab at 8 p.m. after a long day, but then having that satisfaction that you actually did something important that will at some point end to a public uh, lead to a publication is just a, a very rewarding feeling. That uh, I would agree. Yeah, it was very rewarding, and just the day to day was rewarding. Just seeing the result of. Uh, of a PCR reaction and a good yep. product, you know, just that sort yep. of stuff. It was those micro wins that kept it going for me. Yeah. It kind of still works that way for me today in my life. It, that's awesome. And you make a good point as well where, where you mentioned that the other component other than the science was the teamwork, was the fact that you were very well surrounded with scientists who were qualified, who wanted to teach, and I think that's a very important uh, important point to make is when you're in a lab and you're in a place where everyone helps each other, it just magnifies the uh, the effect. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I'd like to point out too, uh, is that during undergrad, we had laboratory courses in pharmacology and in our physiology classes, the TAs were usually PhD students or graduate students. And and interacting with them and, and just seeing what type of individuals they were and, and being, I remember in undergrad, being impressed by the knowledge that they had and how well they were at teaching. That also kind of inspired me. Uh, and getting to know them on a personal level and through those interactions, you, you learn more about grad school and the type of research that was going on. And that also contributed to my um, a choice of grad school, but also even when I joined grad, I was a TA and tried to interact with students in that level and encourage them and, and you know teach them about science and techniques and whatnot. So that's also those were also positive events that occurred. I love that. I love that. And how did you pick your uh, your graduate uh, lab when you do when you went on to your master's and PhD? So so the. The, the summer, so I interned before I matriculated into the graduate program in this this one lab that was studying the molecular. I guess I guess GPCR is molecular biology. They were cloning receptors at the time. That was the big fad back in the late eighties, early nineties. Was was the cloning of the receptors? And and I worked in the summer uh, in this lab. I was actually meant to go join a different lab for my graduate training, uh, more of a behavioral type of research, biochemical epilepsy related research, not necessarily focused on GPCRs, but once I worked in the summer in this, this lab trying to clone some, some GPCRs, because at the time several of the key receptors, neuro, neuropharmacology receptors weren't cloned. And that convinced me that that's what I wanted to do was to stay and continue on the project and work yeah. on it in grad school. And that's how it, I decided to stay there for my master's training. And um, did you continue in the same lab for your PhD or? So, so the PhD uh, event, yeah, I had the opportunity or the option of switching labs, but the, I, I had such a great project. I think uh, during my master's that I really loved it. And I was, I just wanted to continue to work on it. So I, I did stay in the same lab to continue my PhD work as well. Basically an extension of the same project I worked on as a master's student. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so yeah, I ended up staying in the same lab. I advise students these days not to do that. I would encourage them to go to a different graduate program at a different institution from their undergraduate research institution. But the experience I had actually was was pretty was was really great. But I'm not sure it's for everyone to do that. But I still had and learned a lot. I, I can resonate with that. And if anyone would ask me, so what do I think about doing, you know, a master's and a PhD in the same lab, I would say, eh, maybe you want to try something else. But I, it's funny, <laughs> you and I have never met. This is the first time that we actually see each other via camera, but I did have the same experience where I loved so much working. Actually, I stayed in the same lab doing that summer internship, a master's and a PhD because I really loved it. And it was an interesting, an interest, interesting lab. I had the support I needed. Uh, we had a great team, and yeah, I stayed there for, for almost nine years. <laughs> That's very similar to to my trajectory or my path as well. You know, and plus the, and I'm sure these uh, where you were too, right? The diversity of science and the breadth of science was so yeah. broad. I mean, there's so much science going on at the time, yeah. and that you would be exposed at least to all yeah. different aspects. So I, I thought my experience was was very good, despite being in the same lab. Yeah. For, for, exactly. for yes, about nine years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a long time. And then you realize, yeah, well, actually, this was fun. I would, I would do it again, because I really enjoyed my time, but I would maybe not advise someone to stay nine years in the same lab. I would tell them just, just, you know, go out perhaps, you know, for a summer or two, test something out. And then if you don't like it, try and come back. But it's absolutely, uh, it was, it was a great time. All right. So let's, let's switch gears. So you, you stayed in the same lab, you got your PhD and then, and then what, what happened? So, so, the, so the PhD was, was a really great experience. We, we cloned a lot of GPCRs, at least I was involved in cloning a lot. GPCRs, other projects in the lab actually led to uh, GPC cloning, like the opioid receptors, dopamine receptors. I, my, the receptors that I worked on were actually ended up being orphan receptors. So, um, and GPR1, which is the first orphan receptor cloned and named, was the one that I worked on, GPR1, 2, and 3. And yes, we, we did a little bit to try to de-orphanize them, but using some pharmacological approaches, um, but there were limitations in that, right? So I was, I cloned them, basically got stuck at the cell surface in, in terms of concepts and couldn't really study their regulation or their signal because we didn't have ligands from them. So I knew that that was something I wanted to do and that led to uh, picking or, or, or selecting which type of labs I wanted to do postdocs at. And that's how yeah. I, that's what brought me to Jeff Benedict's lab because I was more interested instead of focusing on you know, just the receptor at the cell surface. I really wanted to get inside the cell and figure out what was going on there with with these receptors. I love that you you, you sounded a little bit disappointed by saying, "Oh, well, it was just just orphans." <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I think at the time, as you mentioned, there weren't enough tools to deorphanize and and you know to, to run thousands of compounds and screens in order to deorphanize these receptors. But I think it's still important. And the quote unquote orphans are getting deorphanized every day and they're taking, you know, their, their, their role in human pathophysiology is being, um, you know, discovered. So it wasn't in vain. And I understand the, dis but I understand the disappointment there. Yeah. So I, I guess, I, I guess I didn't want that to come across and it probably did, but the, at the time, I just remembered we needed to put more, I thought that the project or what I was working on, needed, we needed to put more effort on to actually trying to de-orphanize them. And it would have yeah. been very hard for us to do. So, yeah. uh, we, yeah. so that how we tried doing was just taking candidate ligands and just testing them in, in some ligand binding exper experiment. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think So, so I, I kind of missed <laughs> out on some of the, the signal transduction mm -hmm. aspects of the research and the biochemical nature of, of, of pharmacology. So that, yeah, but, but <laughs> I get it. Day, it was good. <laughs> no, I, I totally understand. And I think uh, the, 
when 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 you're working on a project where there is not enough tools or you know you're ahead of your own time when it comes to that particular receptor or project those are the type of projects that i think have to stay within the lab for you know 10 15 20 years until we get to a point where we're like oh now we have the tools to do this and then it goes very quickly and whoever is in the lab at the time a postdoc or a phd who's working on that project is going to kind of you know get the fruits out of out of that project but it's it doesn't you know it doesn't look bad on the other 15 20 people who worked on it in the past 10 years it's just there wasn't technology available then yeah that's a that's a great point that's sure. that's that's the way i see it and that's the way i understood it that's the way it came across like mm, i would have wanted to but um but then so th so then you you went into jeff benovic's lab um and what did you work on in, in jeff's lab yeah, so at the time I joined Jeff's lab, which was late 90s, um, arrestins had just been identified as adapters for endocytosis, clathrin-mediated endocytosis, the GPCR. So there, was a, there were a lot of projects going on, and he had published a lot of papers and since, uh, on the topic of how arrestins promote GPCR endocytosis and develop some cool reagents to study it. So I kind of felt that there were a lot of people in the field studying that aspect of receptor trafficking and also in Jeff's lab who were looking at beta arrestins and endocytosis and trying to figure out which residues were involved in mediating interactions with beta arrestins. So the question that I was interested in at the time was, well, okay, so the receptor interacts with the ligand and then is internalized and then where does it go? You know, so, so I was, so the question, and, and, was important, I thought, because once a receptor is an endocytose that can either recycle or uh, be targeted for degradation, leading to downregulation of signaling. So the, the event interest inside the cell, I thought, was just as important as anything that was occurring at the cell surface, because ultimately it would control cell surface expression of receptors and hormonal responsiveness. So that, I thought that there was a gap there and, and, and so did Jeff. And luckily he, he recruited me and, I, and, I, and I've worked on figuring out the fate of the receptors and how that worked uh, in his lab as, as a postdoc. How did you choose his lab and how did you get in touch with Jeff? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you before you answer that question, that's why I'm asking because this is this is the late '90s, and um, I've had um, Arun Shukla, and I haven't had others on the podcast who said you actually I picked up the phone or actually I wrote a letter on paper and mailed it. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. I wrote a letter and mailed it. <laughs> and did you get a, a letter back or was it a phone call? So I think I think he he called me back in in the lab. Yeah, we talked by phone, um, and and email was just coming out at the time. I don't think it was widely used, but um, I knew I had an email account, and I don't think we communicated through email at that at that particular time. So yeah, it was the letter, and then and then by telephone, and I picked his lab because there were uh, somehow I became I went to some conferences and I saw talks on GPCRs and GPCR trafficking and movement of receptors in the plasma. I thought that I thought the cell biology was really cool. And I thought what Jeff was doing with internalization and trafficking was also pretty cool. I, you know, I thought I, I did my PhD in a GPCR lab. So I was kind of, I was, I knew what, what was happening in the field. And, and I knew that that was something I wanted to learn, you know, and, and, and to learn more and increase my breadth of knowledge about GPCRs, especially. I feel like when whenever you you get into the field and you actually enjoy your training in the field as a master's or PhD student, it is very rare that people look outside of the GPCR field. They're going to look at, okay, wh whose paper I did like reading, which story sounded interesting, and maybe I should talk to them for, for you know, a postdoc or to, to continue my training. So you went to Jeff's lab. Um, how was the uh, the move from you know Toronto to to Philly? How did you how did you experience that for for someone who's you know born and raised in Toronto? It's a good question because because I, it was a little bit different. Toronto, Canada. Um, I lived 
basically six miles away from the lab in the city. Um, and then moving to Philadelphia was a little bit of a, uh, uh, probably didn't go as smoothly as it, it, it would for, for uh, others. But yeah, so I struggled a little bit with, with Philly, uh, for at least for the first year to two years. Um, but uh, I love Philadelphia now. I got in my groove. I'd, I'd live in Philadelphia uh, uh, for sure. I think, I think it's a great city. So it was a little bit challenging getting used to the city. Uh, and then obviously the lab was the lab. It was, it was a really cool environment in the lab with postdocs and students. And, and, and I, one of the reasons I picked Jeff's lab is because Jeff's a real, I don't know if you've met him, but he's, a, yep. he's probably one of the he's, nicest guys in science. He is. He is. I've, I've, I've met him a couple of times and he's really awesome. Really and awesome. so it was an easy decision to, to go work in his lab and to work for him. That's, and, that's and great. Yep. I settled in and then, yeah, it took a while. Yeah, that's, that's why I was asking because, you know, um, I lived in Canada for about 16, 17 years before moving to, to New York City. And the first, I think, I want to say the first three months, it was just, it was just too much noise. And I, Montreal is not a small city. Let's agree on that. But New York is like cold unit. It's a different planet. That's why I was wondering, you know, Toronto versus, versus Philly. Yeah. You know, the more I think about it, and I thought that the more I think about it, the more I realize that the cities are probably more similar than different. And, and at least now that's how I think about it. And, and yeah. it has all this similar Uh, amenities and basically it's a big city and it's, Toronto yeah. is a huge city as well yeah so yeah. but still the good thing is that you 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 found you were in a good lab environment and you found your place basically not only in the lab but in, in Philly as well yeah it worked out really well and I love when there are meetings in Philadelphia um because I love going back <laughs> and and anytime there's a meeting in Philly the I, I go to that meeting. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've been to Philly twice and I, I really I think it's a really nice city. Definitely, you know, taking the train from New York to, to Philly, you, you go from the noisy, extremely busy city to what I would qualify a quieter city. Uh, <laughs> but still it's it's not in the middle of, of nowhere, definitely. Right. That's a good way to put it. So um In Jeff's lab, you, you mentioned that you were interested in, in GPCR trafficking and what happens once the receptor is activated, internalized. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you did in Jeff's lab? So, so um, I knew, I knew, we knew that we were looking at endosomal sorting and the decisions on how receptors decide to go into the recycling pathway or the degradative pathway. Um, not much was known yet, though, at the time. Obviously, now we know it. Ubiquitin plays a huge role. But at the time, um, a paper in, there was one or two papers out of yeast genetics that had shown that ubiquitin is an endosomal internalization signal. So yeast don't have beta rustins and, and internalized through a ubiquitin event process, whereas mammalian cells have beta rustins. So ubiquitin was the way in which yeast GPCRs internalized. And, and There was evidence that ubiquitin might be a signal. So we kind of focused on a little bit on, on ubiquitin. We kind of knew that we were, were looking at a, a, a pathway that involved ubiquitin. And it was the receptor that was the, the important thing there, which receptor to use. Uh, and of course, I used, I, I, to, to answer that question, there were a couple of receptors that I tried initially, a beta 2 receptor, which is the canonical prototypical GPCR that was uh, heavily characterized in terms of internalization and it downregulated, but after chronic stimulation. So I tried working with that initially and, and didn't really get anywhere um, for, for technical reasons and whatnot. It just wasn't a great receptor to study that particular phenomenon. So there was another receptor, a couple other receptors that I tried. And then I, then I came across CXCR4 kind receptor that binds CXCL12. It was, it was a receptor that was being worked on in the lab. There was a postdoc who came from a virology background. HIV was his interest, and, H, and CXR4 had, had recently been identified as an HIV co-receptor. So he was looking at ways in which you can modulate cell surface expression as a means of controlling HIV infection. 
So I, I decided to, hey, maybe I should try CXCR4. Um, and it turns out that CXCR4 was a great receptor to choose because it downregulates very rapidly. So it's yeah. like one of these receptors that gets exposed to ligand and is immediately target, targeted for lysosome 1 degradation. So it was a really good receptor to study um, the, the events that I was looking at. That's awesome. It's one of my, my favorites too. Actually, my, the first receptor I worked on was CXCR4. So um, I'm, it's, it's, in the, it's in the favorite group. But to be honest, and I said this to, to someone else while we were recording an episode, the more I talk to people, the more I learn about their receptors and their family receptors that you work on, the less I have a strong um, um, feelings towards chemokine receptors. I love chemokine receptors, <laughs> but you know, talking to people and learning and more about other families and other receptors, I think it's just, uh, it just enhances the, the love I have for GBCRs. I, I, um, um, that way as well. Um, CXCR4 keeps, keep, keeps me excited still. There, there are new yeah. things we're learning about it, but we're definitely expanding our repertoire of GBCRs to study just to keep it fresh a little bit. Because <laughs> uh, there are other interesting things to look at as well. Definitely, definitely. So then uh, you, you used CXCR4 as, as your model receptor in Jeff's lab. Um, and then what, what, what happened next? How did you decide to become a professor? So I knew, you know, at the time I was doing my postdoc, a lot of the postdocs in the lab actually went into industry and, and, and pharmaceutical industry, especially in the Philadelphia area. There's a good core of pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. out there. So a lot of the postdocs ended up going into industry, which was great. And, and some went into academia. And I knew that academics was my, but I wasn't really sure. I, I still kept the option of industry open. But once I started working on this project on ubiquitin, and we discovered that it played a role in sorting receptors for lysosomal degradation, which was just at the beginning of the field, essentially, because that yeah. was one of the first times it had been shown. Um, Suda Shinoi in Lefkowitz's lab was working on the beta-2 receptor, and she had shown yeah. similar things. And our work came out at more or less the same time. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there was just so much to study. And I continued to work on it on another product. We identified the E3 ligase, and, and, and I realized that there was, and, you know, Jeff actually said, was, was it, well, you know, he, he said, yeah, you can work on that. And he was still going to work on CXCR4, but a different aspect of CXCR4 mm -hmm. um, regulation. And, and I thought there was just so much to study. And, then, and I thought, wow, well, this might be a, a, a way for me to start my own lab. And that's kind of, that kind of got me on, on the track to applying for positions. And that's how I ended up in my first position at Loyola in Chicago. Did you ever think about going back to Canada? Um, I did initially during my postdoc training. Absolutely. I, I applied to several places in Canada um, and uh, interviewed actually in mm -hmm. Toronto. That didn't work out. I ended up, so I ended up taking the position in Chicago. Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, you interview anywhere and everywhere you, you're interested in whatever happens, happens. And for you, it, Chicago was, was the, uh, the first stop. I had never been to the Midwest um, and I didn't, I knew a little bit about Chicago, but I hadn't been there myself. But once I got to Chicago, it's another great American city. Loved it. Yep. That's awesome. And temperature wise, Toronto versus Chicago in the winter. <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I was, that was a question that I was asking when I was moving to Philadelphia because when I lived in Philly, the, the, the temperature actually is pretty warm. I think Philadelphia was going through a warm period during the time that I lived there, which was fantastic. They barely got below zero degrees Celsius. And I was worried about going to Chicago because I thought, wow, I want to go to a warmer climate. Now I'm going to a colder climate. Um, but it, it's a little bit warmer than Toronto, believe it or not. Not that much, but a little bit warmer. And, and Milwaukee also believe it or not, it's probably a little bit warmer than Toronto. I'll call my brothers in Toronto and say it's freezing cold and it'll be slightly warmer in Milwaukee. 
Okay, that's that's pretty good. And it's funny because I did ask when when I finished my PhD and I went to interview in New York, I did ask people, I said, so what's what's it's still it's a six to eight hour drive between Montreal and, and New York City. And believe it or not, the first winter in New York City, I had to purchase a um a coat that was, you know, even um thinner than my um I'll spit it out in a second, than my um fall coat that I used to use in Montreal because it was so warm that I just, I, I said to myself, this is impossible running shoes all year long in the winter. When in Montreal, you had to, you know, do the boots and then get to work, get rid of the boots, get rid of all the layers. And I don't know in Toronto, but in Montreal in the winter time, if you take the Metro, it's always very hot inside. So you, you sweat and then you go out and it's extremely cold. It's minus 30 plus the wind chill and it's minus 40. And then you just don't know where, what to, how to dress anymore. <laughs> Very similar in Toronto. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I was surprised how warm Philadelphia was, but that was, that was great. And Chicago, despite the cold, is such a great city. It, it, and it's very similar to Toronto in a lot of ways. So it was I enjoyed living there. And I love living close to Chicago because I can go visit. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you, you, you got your first position as a PI in Chicago. Um, what did you continue working on? Did you choose a different set of receptors to work on? Yeah, luckily, luckily I was able to continue to work on the project that I worked mm -hmm. on as a postdoc. Uh, Jeff was totally gracious and supportive of that. And, and, and luckily I was able to continue to work on that project once I left his lab. And you know, and yeah, got, uh, was able to recruit graduate students to, to work on the project, and results. I, yeah, it was great. And, and CXCR four was the focus. Ubiquitin being the focus too, because again, there wasn't really much being done on that aspect of GPT or signaling. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so I can we can say that CXCR four is your favorite GPCR. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> It is. <laughs> and, and we know why, obviously. I think we, we both agree on why CXCR4 is such a great receptor to be working on. Right, right. It, so, it, it, I, I got lucky, though, because when... So CXCR4, obviously, is now implicated in cancer. But when I started working on it back in 98, 99, 98, it, it, it had only just been identified as an HIV co-receptor. The, the seminal paper that showed that chemokine receptors and chemokines play a role in cancer was in 2001. So I was already working on. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, that the topic, I think, is highly relevant even to uh, cancer. So, so, yeah, it's still my favorite receptor. That's great. And interestingly, the first paper, I, the first scientific paper I read was from Annette, Annette Gilchrist, where they, show, I think 2001 or 2002, where they showed that actually um, tumors express the chemokine, no, sorry, the tumors express the receptor of CXCR4, and that's what guides the tumor cells to form metastases. And and that's that's how CXCR4 came into the picture on my end, but as well, my, well, Nicolaus is, um, Previous work was in the HIV field, so we worked on CXCR4 because of of its role in in eight, being as an HIV co-receptor. Yeah, very similar to how I encountered the receptor, and just so happened to be working on it, and and these major discoveries on on cancer. So, and and yeah, so it's still a very highly relevant receptor pathophysiologically. So it remains one of my top receptors for sure, although we're expanding into other GPCRs. What are the latest and the newest discoveries regarding CXCR4 in general? So, so uh, you know, it's still, it, it's been linked to cancer, associated with many different cancers, um, which is great. But I, for me, the regulation of it is still pretty exciting and, and trying to understand how it's regulated and how it signals. And, and that's what we're studying right now. We're trying to determine how the spatial and temporal regulation of this receptor contributes to its signaling. And, and so location bias is one of the things that we're focusing on and trying to understand how location of the receptor dictates which pathways get activated and, and how that affects cell behavior. And of course the main, as you mentioned a couple of seconds ago about it being involved in metastasis. 
Uh, migration is one of the pathways that we're looking at, and then also cell survival. That's that's just fantastic. Um, but when we say CXCR4, in 2009 was the year when uh, CXCR7 was was discovered. And, you know, Tom Tom's lab, among other labs, showed that CXCR4 forms heterodimers with CXCR7. Do you work on CXCR7 or have you ever looked at the function of CXCR4 in the context of cancer in the presence of CXCR7? So we, we do pay attention to what CXCR7 is definitely doing in our systems because it's it's present pretty much everywhere CXCR4 is expressed. And we, we and, and anytime we add CXCL12 to cells, we have to make sure that it's a CXCR4-dependent process and not a, you know, a co-CXCR7. <laughs> but ultimately, we're looking at cellular regu- regulation of CXCR4. And in some cases, we can rule out a role for CXCR7. In other cases, we can't. Um, so um, yeah. and, and, and certainly, they can be working together in the pathways that we're studying, for sure. Um, in our paradigm, I tend to think that CXR7 is more as a, is working as a sequestrant, a, 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 yep. a decoy-type receptor that sequesters CXL12 in our system and rather than working with CXR4 in these pathways that we're looking at. But certainly mm-hmm. in other systems and in, in other contexts, probably is working together with CXR4. Um, yeah. that's, that's, that's great. And actually it just, it does take me to, to my next question. So you mentioned that you always are careful when you look at the, the effects of CXCL12, uh, in your system to make sure that it's CXCR4 dependent. Um, are there any tools or any, any novel, um, yeah, tools basically that you think that you would need that should be developed in order to better study this relationship between CXCL12 and CXCR4? We, so I think the best way to do it, like you can do it pharmacologically, isolate um, four with AMD 3100, but that also can potentially bind to uh, CXR7 and have other effects. So it's a tricky way to take a pharmacological approach to it. So I think the best way is to, to knock them out. And with CRISPR-Cas gene editing now being so prevalent and quite easy, that that would be the best way to do it is just to knock out each of the individual receptors in their respective cell lines and then study them. And I, and I know someone's already done that for CXR4 and 7 in the cell line that we use a lot, HeLa cells, which express both receptors at a high level. So, and then you can isolate the effects of the two receptors, but you have to be very careful even making gene-edited cells because then you can create a different, totally different environment compared to the wild type situation. So you've got to be careful how you interpret those results as well. But th- that would be the, the, the best way to do it, I think. Agreed, agreed. And interesting that you mentioned, uh, I'm surprised that it's not hex cells that you're using. <laughs> I think you're the first guest on the podcast who uses HeLa cells uh, in the context of, of GPCRs. Um, and then you're right. Every time I think about you know uh, gene editing, hex cells or any type of cells, the example that comes to mind is, you know, knocking out uh, G-alpha I1, and you know that cells can um, re- rewire themselves in order to, to make, um, again, I'm losing my words, um, to, to really um, make space for whatever is, that, that whatever is missing, and as I mentioned, rewire. What type of experiments do you typically run? You mentioned uh, chemotaxis or migration, uh, to look at the effects of 6L12 and 6R4. What other uh, techn- techniques do you use? So, so um, luckily, moving up here, we've expanded our repertoire of techniques. So moving from Loyola to Milwaukee. Milwaukee so Milwaukee has, uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin has an EPR center. So we've started using EPR spectroscopy in our research. We, we're, we're looking... So we're, we're, we're looking downstream of the receptor in our work. We're looking at how arrestins affect trafficking CXR4 and other adapter molecules affect trafficking of R4 and contribute to signaling. So mm-hmm. uh, we're using EPR spectroscopy, which is a biophysical technique, and uh, we're looking at conformational dynamics and how that regulates beta arrestin function downstream of this receptor. So, so that's one of the new techniques that we've incorporated into my lab. So we're taking more of a structural biophysical approach to some of the questions we're asking. Um, you, you might be happy to know and, and, and probably surprised to know that we finally started using BRET 
<laughs> that was my <laughs> you mentioned biophysical methods and i was going to ask so any brett <laughs> yeah uh, we should probably get some really cool we get some advice from you on on, on brett, but we've only recently started using it and but it's 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 an, it's been necessary for us to do that to actually show some of the in vitro results that we're generating with beta rustins and some of these other proteins that we're studying to, to actually go into a cellular environment. And Brett has proven to be a quite very good technique and approach to use to be able to validate some of our in vitro experiments. Happy so to that's help. another I, approach. I can, I can Brett in my sleep. I've run, I've <laughs> run, I ran so many plates and so many, yeah. You can wake me up at 3 a.m. and ask me any Brett question and I will give you the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> so please feel free to... Uh, to reach out, I'm happy to help uh, on that one. Uh, awesome. We'll t I'll take you up on that. Um, so, yeah, Brett's been a big part of it. And, of course, in spatial and uh, temporal regulation, uh, we're at, we do a lot of confocal microscopy and look to see where mm -hmm. our proteins are, where their complexes are still present after we manipulate uh, certain amino acids and things of that nature. And then, and then uh, yeah, so, so uh, we take a cell biology, biophysical type of approach and genetics because we are trying to knock out genes here and there as well yeah do you um so just to make sure that i understand this correctly so you're looking at at what happens with cxcr4 post uh, the trafficking of the receptor but in the context of cancer or do you have any other diseases that you're interested in so, so cancer cancer is our main focus so hela cells the reason why we work with hela cells is because they uh, have a high abundance expression of CXCR4, um, a lot more than hex cells. They're expressed in hex cells as well, but certainly not to the extent that they are in HELAs. And, but we do use hex as well because it's a good, we, especially for our bread experiments, we find that that's the best environment for bread in our hands. And, but HeLa cells, luckily, and, and I looked for a model cell line early on when I was a postdoc in Jeff's lab, and, and through recommendations from him and others, HeLa cells became our model cell line because they do express high levels of CXCR4. Not only that, we can detect endogenous expression of the receptor with uh, available reagents that are commercially available. Western blotting, for example. Um, and which is rare for GPCRs. They're usually, the antibodies are usually aren't that good and receptors aren't expressed endogenously at such high levels where you can actually see good uh, immunoblots, you know, good, good re immunoreactive blots, bands uh, on a blot. Yeah, I think one advantage with CXCR4 is that it's been studied in and out and from all directions and there's good tools, tool compound, but also tool reagents to do full cytometry or to do uh, to do Western blots or even ELISA's, it's it's pretty uh, it's a pretty neat system. And you know, having uh, conformational antibodies that detect you know confirmation specific confirmation of the receptor is also really really cool and useful tool. Absolutely, I always always say that, especially new graduate students, that we're lucky that the immunologists or the virologists. Because a lot of the reagents we use were developed once it was identified as a co-receptor. We, we used this antibody that, that was developed back, back in the late 90s that is probably the best antibody for this receptor, at least for immunoblotty. Yeah, the 12G5? The 12G5 actually never worked for us by immunoblotty. It's, 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 uh, it's 2B11. It's an antibody called 2B11. Uh, that was characterized in the paper back in the late 90s, and it works extremely well for... Western blotting. And that was the other trick to, to studying the pathway that I'm studying is to have an endogenous system and to have reagents that I can detect using the endogenous system. So I tested multiple reagents against CXR4. And in my hands, the best one for certain applications was this 2B11, I believe it's called. But I've worked with 12G5 as well. <laughs> See, when yeah. you're in the field, you kind of know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of know the in and outs. But I think the 12G5, uh, the epitope is confirmational, which is why you may not be able to detect it on a Western blood. But it works great in flat, in facts, in flow. It's uh, it's really nice, and you can actually compete uh, CXL12 against 12G5 by flow. Oh, that's Which awesome. is a, yeah. kind of a neat, neat experiment. Not fun to do when you have to pipette through all the stainings and stuff, but it's a kind of a neat, neat experiment when you have the data run. Right. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, there are, there are these cool reagents that, that, that are yep. available. 
Agreed. Agreed. I love it. I, I, I love it. Wait, it's it's so funny, and I, I I know I said it in the beginning, but you and I have never ever spoken before, <laughs> <laughs> except to set up this call and and look how how many things we have in common. I know, I know. And of course, I've read your research. I followed your work with uh, CXR four and the other stuff you were doing with chemokine receptors. Same here, same here. I think we we knew each other from from the papers, but that that's about it. All right, super. So um, I have a big picture question, uh, and I know the answer to this is yes, but I would love you. If, I would love it if you would elaborate a little bit. Do you think GPCRs are still good drug targets? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I know they're great drug targets, and of course, the more we learn about even some of these orphan receptors, we realize that there's still unexplored territory um, that can be exploited for future uh, development. But as I said earlier, my my thinking about it isn't so much about the receptor itself, but the pathways downstream and, and figuring out what each pathway is doing and then targeting those pathways and then coming up with new ways to target GPCR signaling that might be a little bit more selective and uh, more specific for a particular pathway rather than developing yeah. drugs at the level of the receptor. It's a little bit far-fetched still, but... It's sort I of how we're thinking about it. I don't think it's far-fetched. I think, um, you know, when, when you're thinking about a drug and you're thinking about a disease context, sometimes the problem is you want to specifically um, target a receptor expressed in a specific tissue because only in that tissue the, it's causing the problem. It's the dysregulation of the receptor in a specific tissue is the cause, root cause of the problem. So I think figuring out what happens after you activate the receptor and what are the possibilities is really important. Then again, the way I see the way I, I see it is kind of this very complex map where you could hit the receptor with different ligands, but at the end you want to figure out which ligand does what. And then once you know what the map inside the cell is, and you can link it to a specific disease in a specific tissue, that's when you have the complete or a more complete image of where the problem is and how you try and work on figuring out what kind of modulation you want to in induce, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's amazing how we still lack some of the, the knowledge that um, how these receptors signal, what the pathways are, and how those individual pathways contribute either to a positive effect or a side effect. We still don't really know that in too much detail. Other than potentially beta-restin G protein, we don't know the downstream uh, pathways yeah. very well yet. And I think that's Agreed. an area for potential exploitation. Yes, which which takes <laughs> takes me to my to the last segment of my questions. Uh, what would be your advice to junior scientists if they wanted to contri contribute to the field? To 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 find an area where there are gaps in the literature and the field and to um, try to solve some of those problems. And I think that's the good way to enter the field and, and make some significant contributions. And the field is so, the GPCR field is so diverse and there's so much still that needs to be discovered. And because of the therapeutical implications um, and, and, and make, coming up with new targeted drugs, the, I think it's just a great area to be in. So I think there are, there's multiple opportunities to to learn. And of course, to understand the biology a little bit as well as important. Um, pharmacology and the receptors is good, but also are all good, but also understanding the biology and trying to learn and develop tools to understand that biology is important as well. Yeah, I think I think I think our the take-home message of our conversation is really follow what what you find interesting. Um, go with it. And uh, there is enough work for everyone uh, <laughs> for, for a couple of more decades, because there are so many questions. I feel like every time we, 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 you know, someone publishes a paper or we discover something, we're like, okay, so now we know this, but then there is 10 million questions that arise from that event. Um, so right. there is, there is enough on the table for everyone. Absolutely. And, and, and we do need young junior investigators, new graduate students, do we, we encourage them to participate in, and work in the field? Because it, it all in the end will uh, improve and, and make 
for better ways to make advances, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think every discovery is important. Every little data piece of data, even the negative data. And I, I could not emphasize this more. Negative data is important to communicate as well, because then you would save somebody else or other people a lot of time. Um, And, you know, the collective knowledge that people generate, that scientists generate in the field only helps improve human health because ultimately it helps making better drugs, more efficient drugs, more specific drugs. Um, And yeah, there's, there's no such thing as, you know, not good data. As long as it's well-controlled, well-performed, the data is the data. And exactly. <laughs> so well let, 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 let us take a little bit of a step back. We, we talked in the beginning about, uh, you know, that first paper that you published and how that motivated you to go into, into research. And, you know, you ended up working on GPCRs. Were there any aha moments in your career trajectory up until now that, you know, um, kind of reinforced your decision and said, you told yourself, oh, this was a good choice uh, career-wise. Yeah. So um, definitely uh, when I was cloning receptors, like we, we were, we were cloning. When I started, we had not identified any new GPCRs, but then while working on them, we, we just we discovered new GPCRs and boom, that was exciting, you know. Then then this was like one of wow, this is gonna work, where we have something here that we can develop into a project and potentially uh, make a big splash in the field. And of course, when I started my postdoc, um, figuring out which receptor to to use as my model GPCR and which cell line to use, whatnot, and 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 realizing that. Wow, I think we're onto something. Was was that first result where we saw that ubiquitin or, or was going to play a role in, in our pathway? That those were really cool moments in uh, the research and realizing that the hypothesis was going to be uh, validated was really really cool. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Last but not least, where can people find you in case you know they're interested in getting to to know more about your work and if you have open positions in your lab? Um, so my, I have a lab website. Um, I, I can be reached through Twitter as well. I'm, I'm not very active on Twitter. Probably a little bit more active uh, just to promote the field as well. Uh, but certainly my lab website. We do have openings all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, certainly, I can be reached via email. Uh, for those who would be interested in working in my program. I'd love to hear from you. Well, that's awesome. So I have to mention as well, and I'm pretty sure you know this, Adriano, but we do have a career page. So anytime you have open positions in your lab, uh, on the career page, drgpcr.com slash career, uh, just you know submit the form and we will publish the, uh, the job opening on our page and people can find you and that oh, way as well. Awesome. That's great. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, and how would you feel if someone actually wanted to join your lab and wrote you a handwritten letter? <laughs> <laughs> that would be actually pretty awesome, wouldn't it? Pretty I, think so too. <laughs> I think so too. I was talking to someone else. Um, it was Mark Connor in Australia, and he did a postdoc here in the US. And I asked him the same question, did you write a letter? And he said, yes. Um, and I promised him I will send him a letter. So now it's the second time and mentioning this means that I do really need to uh, sit down and write that letter to Mark. But I think it, it has a charm, you know, uh, getting an envelope and opening up the letter and reading. And obviously, the, I would encourage the person, if anyone wants to write you a handwritten letter, to put their email and phone, phone number in there um, <laughs> just to expedite things. But uh, I think it's a, it's great it's kind of a, a romantic way to to apply for a postdoc position. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. All right. Thank you so much, Adriana, for your time. I really enjoyed our chat. So did I. Thank you a lot for having me, Yamina. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Dr. GPCR podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, as well as our team members, Attila Forrest, Shivani Sajdev, Ines Pinero, and Alexa Juran. We look forward to seeing you live at the next Dr. GPCR Virtual Cafe. Visit drgpcr.com slash virtual dash cafe for more information. 
Also, please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter today. You can also find us on YouTube. And if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Also, email us with any questions and suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.